Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, the heart-centered connector. Effective communication is at the heart of every connection I make, and it has to be at the heart of every workplace for people to thrive. And that's why my company, Grow Strong Leaders, sponsors this podcast. We are on fire about getting our exceptional books and tools in the hands of millions of people in the workplace. And you can learn more at growstrongleaders.com. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you to someone I think is very special. His name is Peter Winnick. Peter, welcome to my show. Well, thank you for thank you for having me, Meredith. Well, I'm so excited about the things we're going to be talking about today. And let me just give a little bit of a formal introduction to my audience before we get started. Peter is the founder and CEO of Thought Leadership Leverage, and it's a consulting firm that helps thought leaders leverage their expertise. Peter works with a variety of thought leaders, including authors, speakers, CEOs, and academics to build their brands. And he applies these same processes to an organization that wants to differentiate and grow its business. Peter's also the host of the Leveraging Thought Leadership podcast, where he interviews, not surprisingly, thought leaders. And so I want to highly recommend his show to you. It's excellent. He has brought in so many guests, thousands, well, hundreds by now, right, Peter? Almost 400, yeah. And so it's still going strong. And these are some real leaders in the field. So, Peter, welcome again. And let's get started by talking about your journey. How did you get into this whole arena of thought leadership? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, it's not unlike how most thought leaders get into something, which is um, unpredicted, unplanned, somewhat serendipitous. So um, I was always, before we even used the term thought leader, uh, you know, we might have called it book nerd or, you know, whatever. So I was always, you know, from when I was a kid, uh, you know, on up to my, my early career and stuff, always taking in as much as I could from a content perspective, articles, magazines, books, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But like most people, I never gave a thought, not a millisecond to what are their underlying business models, right? I would buy a book like everybody else, pay my $20, $30, read the book, go, hmm, here's three interesting points. Maybe I can apply that in my business, et cetera. Um, but I'm an entrepreneur, right? And, and then the other side of me, when, I'm, when I wasn't nerding out, was building businesses, starting businesses, growing businesses, selling businesses, et cetera. And I thought they were two totally separate things. And then way, way back in... 2003, 2004, I got brought in to do a turnaround for a communications consulting firm. And it was basically a company whose primary product was presentation skills. It was at the time, I think 40 some odd years old. And it was actually based on a book that the founder had written in the, in the late 1960s. And I'm like, oh, there's, there's a whole business of thought leadership here. And then that led me to move on after we did that turnaround to partner with Keith Ferrazzi when we launched Never Eat Alone, and then to ultimately launch Thought Leadership Leverage, where 
you know, I've created, because I didn't see it exist anywhere else, the perfect job for me, which is this sort of intersection of entrepreneurship and thought leadership. Well, before we go deep into what you do with these um, individuals you work with, let's get a, a working definition. What do you mean when you say thought leadership? Yeah, so it's, I think that's a great question because someone, we were just talking about this with someone yesterday. When I started the firm, I was deliberate in, in naming it Thought Leadership Leverage. Um, and back then, so this is, we're going on 14 years now, the term that was cringeworthy, and I think Thought Leadership is at a risk of becoming a cringeworthy term, was guru, right? Everybody was a guru. And I was like, unless you're sitting cross-legged in the floor in you know, India teaching me yoga, you're not a guru. I don't know what that means. So uh, to me, when I think about thought leadership, I think that the question is the right question. What's the definition, right? Because if you and I were to talk about lunch, we'd both know it's the meal in the middle of the day. And, you know, typically you're not drinking a lot of alcohol, like whatever. People talk about thought leadership and some people are talking about subject matter expertise. Some people are talking about content marketing. Some people are talking academia. So my definition is there's sort of two pieces when you break it apart. There's thought, right? So it's not just uh, regurgitating common knowledge and putting out something that somebody else said or retweeting something like that. There's something thoughtful. Thoughtful could come from research. It could come from academia. It could come from your life experience as a senior executive, as an advisor, as a consultant. But there's clearly thought invested in what you're putting out there and what you're saying, right? The other piece is the leadership. And I think this is the piece where it takes a lot of courage because if you're just confirming what's already known in a, in a domain, whatever that domain is, leadership, management, resilience, et cetera, that's great, but you're not leading the conversation anywhere, right? And, and that's okay. There's a context to say the best practices and in innovation are the following, right? But the leadership is to say, listen, I'm adding, I'm standing on the proverbial shoulders of giants, and I want to add something to this conversation. And here's the little twist I have, and it doesn't need to be contrarian, you know, the world is flat versus the world is round or whatever. It could just be a little piece that you're adding. It could be adding something from another domain. It could be a perspective, an angle that you have on it, a, 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 an outcome that you've had based on work on clients. And that's leading the conversation, the discipline into potentially a new place. And I think it's that combination of the thoughtfulness and the courage to have the leadership that is special about thought. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be somebody introducing something totally brand new that nobody's ever heard of before, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the reality is at some level, there's something new under the sun. Mm -hmm. There's nothing new under the sun, right? So it's it's a little bit of incremental. Sometimes there is something radically different and radically new and and, and, and whatever. More often than not, it's somewhere between an, you know, an incremental change, improvement, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, adding a chapter to the book that is the, the you know, that domain space. Mm -hmm. So let's look for a minute at what is it not? What do people sometimes think it is, but sure. really it isn't? That's a, that's a great question. So there, there's a time and place for subject matter expertise. So for example, you know, in the logistics business, there are probably, I don't know, 15 people that are the top guys or gals in refrigerated supply logistics and they they write and they do and they whatever and in that very very small universe of people that are interested in refrigerated supply logistics it's it's interesting but it's subject matter expertise it is not thought leadership it is more technical more specific more domain oriented so that's one bucket that it's not and again it's not that one's better than another because mm -hmm. if i was in that business i'd want to read up on those things um content marketing is a place where i think it gets really 
confused with. And there's been an inflation in titles to content marketers, where if I've been a content marketer for five years, it sounds cooler if I convince my boss to make me the director of thought leadership. Content marketing, by definition, is content that is embedded into the product marketing cycle. So for example, uh, if I was in the diaper business, I would be putting out content to teach new moms things that they could do to avoid diaper rash. Now, by the way, those things might not be all that different than I told new moms five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So thought leadership, that's not. Is it important content in the context of the objective to have that connection with the new mothers? Absolutely. But unless it's some you know revolutionary breakthrough, <laughs> it's not. And I think oftentimes we confuse subject matter expertise, content marketing, with true thought leadership. The other thing I would say is anyone, 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 anyone that calls themselves a thought leader, it's shorthand for jerk. You know, it is a title that should be bestowed upon you sort of out of respect by peers in your space that appreciate what you do, that understand what you do, that that say, wow, Meredith is a thought leader in heart-centered connection. You really need to read her books. She's got a perspective on it. She's been practicing this a long time, et cetera, et cetera. If you go out there and say, I'm a world-renowned thought leader in you know, heart-centered communication or connection, I'm immediately a, a bit skeptical. You know, People don't usually start a conversation with, let me tell you how amazing and great and wonderful I am. Mm-hmm. Some people do, they're called narcissists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's an important distinction and I wanna go there a little bit because let's say somebody aspires to be a thought leader. They want to be considered a thought leader. They're not trying to claim a title. So what are the elements that go into building that kind of reputation? Where do you have to start? What are some of the, and I don't think steps is the right word, but what's the process of evolving into that? So I, so I'm a strategy guy, right? So where we start with all of our work with all of our clients is in the development of strategy. So if the only goal is to be called by others a thought leader, I would say that's an ego play. So I would sort of unpack that and say, what is that proxy for? So for example, lots of folks come to us and say, I want to write a book. Well, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but it's usually proxy for something else, right? I I want to put my work, codify it, get it out there, make it accessible to other people. So you start to unpack it. So I would say to them, well, what would being a thought leader mean to you? What would success look like? What would be different about your business? Are you doing that to build your brand? Are you doing that to build your business? Who else is out there that you see as a thought leader that you admire and respect? Who else is out there as a thought leader who has a business model, whether you like their content or not, that you can say, wow, they're really doing something interesting or intriguing or whatever. So I would want to unpack that and really understand what they mean by that, because I don't think there's a, you know, if you said to me, I wanted to be a dentist, I'd say, great. Okay. Here's the path you're going to take. You're going to go undergrad, dental school, whatever. And we will know when you've achieved this, when you're drilling cavities or practicing dentistry and you're licensed and whatever, there is no sort of clear demarcation point to say, congrats, you know, here's your degree. You are, you know, I bestow this upon you. Mm-hmm. That's true. I love that you go deeper with folks to ask them questions. And that to me brings up the other word in your company, because it's thought leadership leverage. So let's talk about that. What do you mean when you say leverage and how do you help clients leverage? Yeah. So reputation. There's two primary reasons, I believe, that clients engage us. One is, so it's, and and the leverage is underneath both of those. So it's about, do they want to have greater impact with their work and, or you could have both. It's not a a binary. 
Do they want to increase the income that it generates for them? So leverage could be impact. People are, you know, this is becoming the standard in this space. This is, you know, more uh, um, highly influential folks are talking about my frameworks, my models, my methodologies, et cetera, et cetera. And then the income side is most thought leaders, at least when we're starting with them, need to be in the room or these days in the Zoom for ideas to be exchanged or dollars to be exchanged. And that's limiting, right? Because even though now with Zoom, you know, we can start our mornings in London and end our days in Singapore and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's still limited, right? So to me, the leverage is how are we going to unleash the power of your ideas? So obviously a book is one. Books are typically not the greatest business model in the world. That's an understatement, <laughs> you know, but what are the other vehicles that I can take the same thought leadership, the same intellectual property and port them into so they have greater scale, so they can reach more people at different uh, price points. That might be uh, validated assessment tools. It could be video-based training. It could be licensing consulting methodologies, whatever the case may be. So the, the leverage piece is, you know, the, you know, clear, the traditional definition of leverage is what's the least amount of effort to get the maximum amount of outcome. Mm -hmm. if my physics is correct, which it may not be. <laughs> but I get the, the point there. It's the idea that someone probably comes to you and do they typically have a book? And do you recommend people have a book to be considered a thought leader? Is that kind of like a prerequisite or requirement? No, it's, it's, I think it used to be. I think um, most of our clients, I would say two thirds, three quarters, have a book or in the process of writing a book, et cetera. I would also say that I have been accused of talking more people out of writing a book than anyone else I know, not because they shouldn't, not because, you know, hey, Merrick, you don't have anything to say, but wait a minute. If we were to get this book out now, based on what you're saying, our timelines are screwed up because we get it out there. And then what? Because the book, unless you're, you know, uh, getting a zillion dollar advance, which very, 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 very few people are, needs to be the beginning of the relationship with potential clients and audience, et cetera, not the extent of the relationship. So you need to think about, okay, so I'm writing this book and then what do I want to happen? And that's why we pull back. So you don't need, in, in today's world, uh, for some people, you might want to. It's a forcing mechanism to get you to get your thoughts together. There definitely is a level of uh, respect that you get in the marketplace, et cetera, but it's not a requirement. You could become a thought leader through podcasting today. You could become a thought leader through short form video today. You can become a thought leader as an academic through academic articles that nobody will read. But there's lots of different modalities. Um, I think book is fairly traditional and we love books. Listen, I'm surrounded by books all day, but it's not the only, it's not like you need to get your card stamp to, to get into the club. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because just thinking about, you haven't used the word scale, but that to me is another aspect of leverage. It, so mm -hmm. that they don't have to personally be there delivering whatever the, the service is that they're offering. Yeah, books are good on the impact side. If written well and marketed well, there's a bunch of caveats there. They're terrible on the income side. Well, so especially it, 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 if you're yeah. going with a traditional publisher, what are your thoughts on self-publishing versus going the traditional publishing route? Does it make a difference in positioning a person in terms of their leadership position? So, so I think with some exceptions, it used to be, say, 15 years ago, a dozen years ago, et cetera, that if you weren't published by you know a traditional big New York house or European house or whatever... It sort of wink, wink, sent a signal to the market like it's probably not as good, 
right? If there was, you know, if this thing was so good, then why didn't Wiley or Random House pick it up? That is absolutely unequivocally not true today, with some exceptions, right? Um, today, I would go back and we spend a lot of time on this with our clients and say, okay, let's talk about the business side of publishing and how that aligns to your strategy and objectives. And a lot of it is, is education. People have misinformation of, well, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to get an agent, then they're going to shop it, then I'm going to get a publisher, then I'm going to get a big advance, and then rainbows and unicorns. For most of us, that's just not the way it works anymore. You know, big publishers are not giving the advances they used to. You lose um, uh, agency and control. You lose timing. I have a client now where we're the big publisher on this deal. The last three months, um, I, I think all this publisher does is have meetings about subtitles and send us ridiculous emails where they've moved a comma to a semicolon. I'm scratching my head going, can't we, can't we just move forward here? Right. So I think um, there's a time and place for a big publisher. There's a time and place for self-published. There's a lot of stuff in the middle now, this hybrid publishing, mm -hmm. which has some of the attributes of traditional relative to the editorial threshold and some of the attributes of self relative to the business model. So I think you need to look at all the variables and it's not a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about people who are either inside companies that want to, you know, increase their own personal brand or an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. a business owner that really would like to be positioned in a particular way. I want to have you paint a clear picture for my listeners. It, let's get specific about clients you've worked with. What is something that someone came to you? What was their need or, or what they presented as the need? What we I guess in psychiatry, they call that the presenting problem yes. versus what the real the presenting you know, underlying so, issue is. And then what did you do to help them? And then what was the positive result they experienced? Yes. So let me start broad and, and then narrow in on that. So very broadly speaking, right, there are two types of clients that we have. There are clients where the thought leadership is the product. So this is an author, a speaker, an academic, a consultant, where whatever, where their thought leadership is how they make their living. Now, they might use it as a coach, a consultant to speak. I mean, there's lots of different ways that you can go about it, but the thought leadership is the product, right? Then we have another group of clients. These are organizations where they're not selling the thought leadership. In fact, they're giving it away in a very smart way, in a very targeted way. So for example, um, uh, we've got a technology company that we're working with and they are in the business of, uh, they have a software uh, that runs nonprofits. And the, the thesis behind it is their target market is nonprofits that are still run by their founders. So small to mid-sized nonprofits. And the software enables them to, in essence, take some of the best practices from big business and instill it into the fortune, in, in, into the nonprofits. Why is that important? Because most of these nonprofits, and again, this painting with a broad brush, um, they're, they're mission-based, right? They're passion. They're really, you know, they want to save the world. They want to cure illiteracy or cure cancer, whatever, whatever their issue is, but they're not as uh, up-to-date with systems and processes and efficiencies and all that. And it's not an either or. So this company that's got the, you know, their, their goal is to sell the software. How many seats of software can we sell and retention and all that? They're putting out a lot of thought leadership about the benefits of best practices in business being applied in small to mid-sized nonprofits so that the better they use their resources, the more they can serve their mission, touch more people, reach more people, et cetera. So that's an example of what I would call organizational thought leadership. And that works really well in 
high tech professional services, financial services, and actually, quite frankly, and in, in, in a lot of nonprofits getting before the message leave, out there. Yeah. And before we leave that organizations, I would love for you to talk about what are some of the forms that content takes? How do they oh, deliver sure. that? What are some of the methods they use for delivering that? So it could be, I mean, it runs the gamut. It could be, you know, some, a founder at that company or someone at that company, et cetera, et cetera being out uh, as a guest on very targeted and deliberative podcasts that have an audience. It could be writing or co-writing articles. It could be research in the form of white papers. It could be short form video interviews. It could be a book. It could be uh, being a contributor in trade journals or, you know, Fortune or Forbes. There's so many different formats and modalities that thought leadership can go into. And, and the reality is most people have a bias, uh, you know, an unconscious bias, if you will, for how they create content because it resembles how they prefer to consume it. Mm. And it really has nothing to do with you. So I'm a reader, right? I read two books a week and I know that's not normal, not that I'm abnormal or I, I might be, but that's separate, but I know that's not typical, right? So if I were to say, well, listen, the, the whole world's like me, they read two books a week, I'm just going to write a lot of books. That's not true. You know, we put out a lot of content in the form of short form video, uh, targeted post on LinkedIn. We have our podcast. We have our LinkedIn Live. So it's different, right? So I think you need to say, wait a minute, where where is my audience? How are they consuming content? And am I able to meet them where they are? Because they're not going to meet me where I am, right? That's mm -hmm. that's too much of an ask for a prospect. Mm -hmm. So. That's how and I would answer I, that. And I love that you're talking about really zeroing in on your specific audience because yeah. you don't need to be a thought leader for to the whole world. <laughs> right. Well, here, here's here's a big deal on that. So um most entrepreneurs, I'm competitive, I'm metric driven, I like to win, et cetera, et cetera. It was a huge relief to me 10 plus years ago when I came to the realization that 99.98% of the world couldn't care less about who we are and what we do as a company. And that was freeing because it was like, okay, all I need to do is spend all my waking hours worrying about that 0.00002% and do everything that we do to focus on them, know their needs, their pain points, where they are, how to find them, how to get them, how to connect with them. And everybody else, we're irrelevant to. And that's freeing because I have limited time and resources to invest. Mm -hmm. I love that point. I think it's so critical because when folks have a, a product or a service that they think can serve a broad audience or is good for everybody, you know, that kind of approach, it, it's sort of a recipe for disaster because you simply can't totally. reach everyone. Well, and it's funny. So on my individual clients, one of the things I'll ask them up front to get a sense of where they are focus-wise and strategic-wise is who could benefit the most from your work? And the answer I like to hear is something really specific. Newly minted managers in the technology space of high growth, private equity funded companies. Bang. I love that answer because I can see it. I can find it. I know exactly where they are. The answer that makes me cringe a little bit is, oh, everybody. Everybody, really, really. Okay. So unless you have the marketing budget, which I doubt you do of Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble, A, you couldn't do that if you wanted to. And it tells me that you actually don't have enough insight to really say it's not everybody, right? They're, you know, who could benefit the most that you want to serve, that you want to be your clients. Now, if other people outside of that definition want to take it on, that's great, but that's not where you focus your time, your limited time and energy from a market. Mm -hmm. So important. So thinking about then a smaller 
individual, uh, smaller organization or an individual author yeah. or speaker, um, what would you, what would be your approach to working with them? Again, thinking of that before, during, after. Yeah. What- so they come to us, you know, a classic example, someone comes to us and they've been in the space for a while. So let's say they've been at it for whatever, 10 years or something like that. They've written a book or two. They're out there. They're speaking. They're doing work. They've got happy clients. Great. And ultimately, what they really have is a practice, not a business, right? And a practice is by definition, you know, you're selling your time in one way, shape or form for money. And there's, right. listen, there's nothing wrong with the practice. Lawyers operate by this model. Doctors operate by this model, whatever. A business is where you can separate the value that is, is created by the intellectual property, by your thought leadership from the value of you being in the room or in the Zoom, right? And a lot of people don't get it. And I said, well, you know, if you were to say to somebody, hey, here's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, Murder, take a bite of that. What do you think of it? You go, oh, that's delicious. And I were to say to you, well, what percent of the deliciousness is the peanut butter, the jelly, or the bread? It's kind of a silly question, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're the delivery, the only way I can consume your content is through you. It's the peanut butter and jelly piece. Now, if I were to say to you, you know, here's a jar of peanut butter, here's a loaf of seven grain bread, and here's this, you know, homemade jelly, treat them differently. So, oh, actually, these do stand out on their own. Or in some instances, they wouldn't need to come together to form a piece there. So for the individuals where we start with strategy, strategy, and then some strategy, right? So who is it that you're trying to reach? What are your goals? We'll have a big conversation around goals. There are intrinsic goals, like it is really one of the reasons I'm on this planet is I enjoy getting emails from someone that saw me speak or write or whatever to say, wow, saw your stuff. It changed the way I think, or it enabled me to have a conversation with my boss that recalibrated this, this rocky relationship or whatever. Um, there's income goals. Hey, I've been stuck in this range of between A and B for X number of years. And it's not a bad range, but it just always seems like that's where I'm going to be. How can I increase my income to a certain uh, you know, multiple? And then the last piece is, what might an exit look like? I've been doing this for 30 years and I've got all these assets. And unless I am you know, taking them off the shelf or off the hard drive, they're not creating value. They're not paying dividends. What might an exit look like? Then we want to figure out the markets they want to serve. We want to think about the productization side. What are the other modalities I can port this into? Um, sales, marketing, and distribution. The single biggest functional area of weakness across the board is sales and marketing, sales, marketing, and distribution. Because that's not, for the most part, that's not what get thought leaders out of bed. If that's what got them out of bed, they'd be the head of sales at Oracle or something. <laughs> Very good point. Um, so tell us about, and you don't have to name the person, but I would love to just hear a specific. What, uh, what's one person or a couple of people, if you've done something similar, that you've helped them incorporate that then they achieved those goals that you just talked about? Oh, there's several. So we've, we've and without naming names, but several where, I mean, there's a client I'm working with right now. She's a PhD. She's been at it 25, 30 years and typically delivering high touch services, consulting, advisory, et cetera, et cetera. But the work is really codified. It lives in a bunch of books. It's, it, it's um, the IP is really codified. So we're now going back and having different conversations with her former clients that thought of her as the workshop woman. Oh, we bring her in to do X for a half day for our high pose or whatever the case is. And now we've spelled out because we've done our work post strategy. Hey, here's the other ways that we can work together. You can license from me. I have a digital base, this, I have that. 
And we're moving from five-figure engagements to high six-figure engagements really, really quickly. And not only are six-figure engagements better than five-figure, that's just math, but the amount of her personal time required to deliver the six-figure, and this is counterintuitive, is a fraction of the five-figure, mm-hmm. right? Because it's build it once, sell it again and again, mm-hmm. and it's consistent and it's digital and it delivers a value. I think what happens is as many of us do what we do for longer and longer, we're moving up the pyramid, right? And the air gets really thin and we're used to dealing with the board or the C-suite or senior level. And we don't, we sort of lose track. And it's, I don't think it's snobbery. I just think it's, this is where you go. That, wait a minute, if you look at most organizations, most of the, 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 the legs and the arms and the sweat and the blood and all that is at the base of the pyramids, right? This big, broad base. But they would never bring us in to do that. We're too expensive. We're too this, we're too that. But you know, we've made a ton of money for a lot of our clients by saying, well, what is a, a, a derivative of what you've got that might be, you know, $50 a year for the front line where mm-hmm. we go from selling high ticket, low volume to low ticket, high volume to the same clients. Mm-hmm. And that's a game changer. Oh, absolutely. That's brilliant. I love it. I cool. think that's such a great idea. So let's think about the impact of COVID here. Um, how did you have to help clients pivot uh, when all of a sudden there was no travel, there were no in-person live events, which I'm sure quite a few of your sure. clients were involved with. Well, the ironic thing is that I used to say to clients, okay, let's imagine if you had 90 days to six months of time but and your clients still paid you and your pipeline was still getting it had no impact. What would you do? Well, how would you spend that time? And nine out of 10 of them would say, well, there's another book I'd want to write or this you know, research I want to do, whatever. Very, very few, like less than one out of 10 would say, I really need to get my sales and marketing up to snuff, or I need to redo my product development, right? So this was the ultimate question. And this goes back to my practice issue. So what COVID did is it kind of blew up the speaking business. So you know, there's a whole ecosystem and economy of what drives the event business. There are associations, there are companies, there, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole universe there that supports a lot of speakers. Now, a lot of my clients might, may or may not describe themselves as a speaker. It's one of the things they do. Maybe it's the primary thing, maybe it's not. But speaking used to be a great tip of the sword, the tip of the spear, right? Mm-hmm. Someone brings you to speak, they pay a lot of money, they fall in love, and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, now that we're in, you know, what it like, technically the third year of COVID, I can't believe I just said that out loud. Um, I think the forever changes are the way we do business is different. I do not think we will ever have another 2019 again relative to the frequency of events, the volume of events. I think corporate America and corporate global business learned that. Why is that our default setting? We got to go to Vegas 10 times a year or Scottsdale, whatever. And I love the in-person. I love the energy. I love the connection. I love the community. But this is a great way to deliver content. Right. Mm-hmm. Not the only way. And it's not the be- necessarily the best way. But when you can put a pencil to it and say, hey, I could you could have flown to New York or I could have flown to Virginia. We could have done this in purpose, you know, in, in person and it would have cost more time and it would have cost more money. This is great use of that. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that's where we're going to go and say, do we need to be in person? And if we are going to be in person, you better raise the bar. Right. So I think that's changed forever. I think that ex- it extends itself to the trend in learning, the workshop side of the house, the in-person stuff was going down pre-COVID. We were all forced. I mean, every educational institution from kindergarten to post-grad school went distance learning Mm -hmm. in 30 days. Like Mm -hmm. e-learning, we've been talking about e-learning for 25 years, right? 
um, I've, I've got a, 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 a buddy that teaches at Columbia and NYU, and they immediately, you know, went distance learning. And I said to him, wow, if COVID didn't happen, how long would that have taken? He goes, I've been on one of these committees here for 10 years. I would have been long retired and long dead before we hit a fraction of what we did in three weeks. So it's really interesting, right, mm-hmm. in, in terms of what our defaults are, how we're going to take in information and, and, and thought leadership and content. And I think the issue is if you were a speaker that was just an entertainer, right, telling your stories and telling your jokes and da 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 nobody's paying $30,000 for that anymore. Right, because I can go to YouTube and go or go to Netflix and get my entertainment. You know, a speaker needs to be able to at least plant the seeds now of a capability that can be developed. Give me an insight that I couldn't have gotten elsewhere. And they need to be fluent in how do how else do I deliver that value? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's not just about the stage and the theatrics and the, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's seeing that that presentation really as the first step. And realizing, you know, circling back to the things that you just said with that one consultant, you helped deliver. She was no longer the workshop lady. She was able to provide so much more. And so is that something you see as a long-term trend that this idea of doing these one-off presentations is, I won't say going away totally, but less emphasized than looking for a full solution well, I think there's a time and place for a one-off presentation, right? So if you're a certain event and you want to bring in, you know, Obama or whoever, that's to put butts and seats into sell. And it's an interesting story to hear. Um, more often than not, that budget's going to be reallocated to say, listen, I have a hundred thousand dollar budget. I can bring in a rock star speaker, or I could license some video-based learning system with a lesser known but more impactful speaker from a capabilities perspective. And what's the ROI? Because what's the ROI of a great speaker on stage? Unless you're the person selling the tickets and says, oh, I know that if I spend $100,000 on Obama, I'm going to sell a million dollars worth of tickets. Okay, that's fine. But most organizations can't do that math, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what they're thinking. So I have to make an investment. And what's the the ROI on that investment? Mm -hmm. And if you can't articulate to your clients what the impact and outcome and ROI uh, of working with you is in whatever format and modality is, you're in trouble today. Mm-hmm. It's not about just, it's got to feel good or, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm an esteemed author. Yeah, that's great. What's in it for me? How am I people, what are my people going to do, see, believe, behave, act differently as a result of being exposed to your work? Mm-hmm. Great point. Peter, this has been so great. I'd love to have you tell me, what did I not ask you about related to um, thought leadership and leveraging that would be valuable for my listeners to hear about and go away thinking about what can I do? How can I do that? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I'm thinking about that. You know, I I would say that, uh, you know, strategy, right? So when when I talk to most thought leaders, be they on the organizational side or the individual side, and ask them what they're doing, tell you, tell me what you're working on, whatever, I get a list of tactics and things. Right. We're building out this new thing or we're writing this new thing, whatever. And it's very rare that they start the conversation with articulating. Here's the, so if I'm on the organizational side, here is our business strategy. Reach these people, do these things, whatever. Here is how our thought leadership aligns to that. And therefore, here's the tactics I'm currently working on that are in support of that. Right. And on the individual side, it's, it's even more jumbled. You know, there's usually 72 plates spinning in the air because they're passionate, maybe a touch of ADD like we all have. 
you know, someone told them they need to be on Clubhouse. Oh, okay. Someone told them they need to be on TikTok. Someone told them they should write this and do this and do that. So there's lots and lots of things that are partially done. And for everything they're doing, by definition, there's things that they're not doing. And a strategy ultimately, what's the benefit? It gives you clarity. And from clarity, you can most effectively prioritize what could I do, what I do, should I do in service of an objective I'm trying to achieve. And I would argue that more thought leaders need to think strategically uh, and actually think about their resources as precious and scarce, even though, oh, it's just my time. Well, six months of my time to me is worth a lot. Yeah. Oh, those are such great insights because it's so, uh, there's that fear of missing out, right? That we get caught up in, oh, that latest thing, I need to be there. That, But I think circling back to what you said earlier about knowing who your audience is and where they are simplifies your options. Yeah, no, totally. So for example, TikTok might be the greatest thing since sliced bread for the Kardashians. I know my market. There is no, and I, and I, when these things come out, I research them, I study them, I look at them, whatever. I'm like, I have made a decision that it is pointless for us to invest in TikTok. I believe that's the right choice for us. I don't think the type of people that we work with looking for the type of services we sell would be looking for that on TikTok. Are they on TikTok looking for, I don't know, something silly or something to do? They might be, but that's not where I want my brand associated with right now. When Clubhouse was the biggest thing out there, you know, six, eight months ago, whatever, I dabbled in it. I looked at it. I wasn't quite sure. I did a couple of experiments on it where I hosted a couple of things, got a bunch of people. I'm like, you know, I'm not feeling it yet. I can, I can wait. I don't need to be the first, the first one in the party here. And then I watched. And then sort of six months later, not that it's gone to zero, but I don't feel like I'm missing opportunity by not participating because there's a lot of multi-level marketing. There's a lot of things on there that are not where our, our people are. Mm-hmm. That, that I think that's a fabulous place to wrap up because I think that's a key question anyone in business needs to be asking. Where are my people? Where are the it's people all about I want that. to reach? Who are my people? Yeah. First well, it's who and then where. Yes, that's, a, that's a, an excellent point. Yes, who and then where. And if we can have clarity on that, uh, the the leveraging kicks in. Peter, oh, yeah. I love everything you've said today. This has been such a great conversation. And I want to encourage my listeners to subscribe to your podcast. And also, please let them know how can they connect with you? How can they learn more about your services? Because I know my audience consists of people who are Many of them are owners of businesses who are looking yep. for the kinds of things you offer. So uh, usual social, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and whatnot. Uh, best place to find out about us is the website, thoughtleadershipleverage.com. And then you could email me directly if you'd like, very quaint, but it actually goes right to my phone and I answer it. Peter at thoughtleadershipleverage.com. Great. Well, Peter, thank you so much. You are a wealth of wisdom around this very topic. And um, I love your energy. I love your enthusiasm and your wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Meredith. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into my podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.